The gospel lesson is taken from John's Gospel, chapter 11, verses 32 through 45. Hear the gospel of our Lord. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. The word of the Lord. I heard a story. I, I don't know where it uh, was, um, um, except some, some years ago. I don't know whether it was in West Virginia or South Carolina. I can't remember which state I was in at the time. Um, but anyway, it goes something like this. It's really based on John chapter 11. A Christian young lady had received a proposal of marriage. She had received it from a non-Christian young man, and she was troubled by it, and yet she was struggling with the decision. So, of course, in that kind of situation, you want to find out what God's will is. And um, uh, she was very troubled. And so, uh, what, what do you do? You look for a sign, a voice from heaven? Well, she resorted to that old method that I'm sure that uh, many of you have used, that is to randomly open your Bible and throw your finger on a verse and read it, hoping that that's God's message to you. Well, the young lady tried this method. And she was, of course, reading from the King James. It's a little bit different. And she opened her Bible and her finger landed on John chapter 11, verse 44, which says, Loose him and let him go. <laughs> well, she, she didn't really like that verse very much. And so she uh, waited a few days and, uh, 
And uh, she attempted to satisfy this uh, matter and to, to get clarity on it. And so she closed her eyes and she opened her Bible and she put her finger on a verse. And it said, very simply, lo, it has been four days. And she didn't like that either because it didn't seem to give her a clear message. So she immediately said, well, that wasn't it. And for some reason, it opened to John chapter 11 again. And there she threw her finger on verse 39. And it said, by this time, he stinketh. (laughs) Now, chapter 11 is a very important chapter. It is the resurrection of Lazarus. I I even misspoke then. His being raised from the dead. I'm going to try to distinguish what happened to him from an actual resurrection. But this is an important passage. This is an important chapter. It is a chapter, in fact, that uh, forms a unit with uh, a couple of other passages in the Bible. This, this, this chapter 11 comes, at, a, at, if you will, at a curious place in the Gospel of John. All of this time, up until chapter 11, Jesus has been teaching, and surely there has been hostility. But chapter 11, verse 1 through chapter 12, about verse 8, which forms a unit, it's a transition because after chapter 12, verse 8, it is clear that Jesus' destiny, if you will, is fixed. The temple authorities have already determined that he must be done away with. And of course, he knows that he must suffer and die on the cross. But chapter 11, verse 1 to chapter 12, verse 8 forms a unity. In chapter 11, verse 1 through 44, you have the raising of Lazarus. Then you find that the raising of Lazarus induces even more hostility toward Jesus. You might say it's the tipping point. And if you read verse 11, chapter 11, 45 through 54, you see then that the temple authorities begin to plot to kill him. But you also find this section concluding with a, a wonderful act of worship. And that is in uh, verses uh, chapter 11, 55 through 12, 11. And it is Mary who, with her long hair, lets her hair down and washes his feet and worships him. But let us look at the raising of Lazarus from the dead. It does represent a turning point in the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, because it represents a turning point, maybe I need to give just simply a couple of of, um, indicators why it is a turning point or a tipping point. But in this sermon today, I want you to simply see this, that when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, it was a sign. It was a sign of who Jesus is and what he was about to do. And that sign requires a response. It requires a turning to Jesus and believing in him and accepting him for who he is. But we also find out that there are those then that sharpened, if you will, their decision 
to reject him, to refuse him, and even to kill him. Now, look at the theme of the Gospel of John. Uh, in the Gospel of John, if you look at chapter 20, verse 31, you will find the entire theme of the Gospel of John. And it is uh, something that uh, you know, and no doubt uh, that you have memorized. But in chapter 20, verse 31, it says this, but these things, that is everything gone before in the Gospel of John, and he mentions signs many times. But these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now that is the entire theme of the Gospel of John. Everything in the Gospel works toward that. Or if you will, that verse becomes the foundation for whatever is in the Gospel of John. But I want you to compare this, before I mention a few things, with chapter 11, verse 41, of what has been read to you. And in chapter verse 41, uh, uh, it is clear then that they took away the stone, and then Jesus, and notice this prayer, looked up to heaven and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. Isn't that wonderful that God always hears the Son? I have an image in my mind that when we pray, and, and our prayers sometimes are so feeble, and sometimes full of unbelief, if you will, even, half-hearted, not concentrating, not truly uh, uh, engaging in earnest prayer. Now, we pray anyway. But I happen to think that Jesus, because of who he is, gathers up our prayers and sanctifies him by his own righteousness and presence and offers them up to the Father. And when they reach the ear of the Father, they are perfect. For all worship is done in Jesus' name. And it is wonderful to know that Jesus is always heard by the Father. And he bids us to cast our care upon him for he cares for us. But I want to continue. He says, I know that you always hear me, but I said this, and here is a, a place where Jesus actually prayed to the Father, but also prayed for others to hear him. Now, I've heard prayers where people only prayed the prayer for you and me to hear them. I wonder if it ever got uh, to Jesus because it was clear that they were preaching rather than praying. And I've done that myself, and maybe you have too. But Jesus here is praying to the Father, but he also recognizes that the people are hearing and listening. And here's what he says, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you have sent me. Now see how it connects with the theme at the end of the book. But moreover, I want you to look just very briefly at verses 45 and 54. What happened when Jesus, uh, excuse me, uh, chapter 11, verse 25, I want you to see another response and a verse that fits this theme. And in verse 25, Jesus said to her, that is to Martha, I am the resurrection 
and the life. And he who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Again, we see that the theme of the Gospel of John is being reiterated here in the words of Jesus to Martha. And so the first thing I guess that I want you really to see in this chapter is something that is very simple. It is not something that, will, that a deep theologian would have to present at all. It is just something that is very simple and straightforward. But uh, what is required is, in, throughout the gospel, and the reason for this gospel is that we might come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, with that in view, look at verse 27 and Martha's response. This is the response that the gospel wants to elicit from us. Hear Martha's response to Jesus' words. Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. Martha stands here. You know, in the other passage that we know about Martha and Mary, she stands as the one who is working and not paying attention to Jesus' teaching. But here she makes her confession of faith. And what the presence of Jesus does before he even raises Lazarus, Martha confesses her faith in him. She puts her whole trust and confidence in him for his presence, his person, and what he is about to do commands it. Says the prophet in the Old Testament, look unto me, ye ends of the earth, and be saved. Martha has done that. She doesn't have to look to the ends of the earth. That means all the people, of course. Here, the Lord is standing in front of her, and she responds in faith. But that's not the only response that Jesus produces. That is not the only response that Jesus produces. You would think that the righteous Son of God would always elicit a response that is positive, a response of Casting your care upon him. A response, if you will, of bowing before his holy presence. But that is not always the response that is elicited. Look at verse 45. And we find in verse 45 another response. Therefore, many of the Jews, and here the Jews, they were all Jewish. The Jews here mean the temple authorities. The ones who run the temple. You might say it's like the boss or the man down there who runs things. And so he says, therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. But notice, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. And why did they call a meeting of the Sanhedrin? They began to plot to kill him. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. 
You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. They thought that he was creating such a disturbance that the Romans once again would take over and take away their liberties. So therefore better to put Jesus to death. Now, if they really had believed that he was the Christ, the son of the living God, their response would have been like Martha's or like Mary later when she washes his feet with her hair. This is the point I want to make. You can think many things about Jesus, as C.S. Lewis has pointed out. You might think he's mad. You might think he is a hypocrite. You might think many things about Jesus, and around this world, there are people who think many things about Jesus. But C.S. Lewis points out one thing that you can escape. One thing you cannot escape. He forces you to make a decision for him or against him. You can't stay neutral. I can stay neutral about George Washington, the first president. I can stay neutral about many things. But you cannot stay neutral about Jesus Christ. He is either the Christ of heaven who came into the world to seek and to save the lost, or he is not. And you must make that decision. He said to Peter, Who am I? Peter finally confessed, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Very simply put, every person who has ever come to true faith in Jesus Christ has been able to utter through the Spirit one short confession of faith, and it is this, Jesus is Lord. And he commands that. And that would be a question to you. I am confident that you indeed believe that Jesus is Lord. But belief in the Lord Jesus Christ will also guide you through life. There are many trials Jesus is about to face his greatest trial. He's already had some. He's been rejected. He's been despised. Many things our Lord suffered in his life. And some of his disciples began to also to suffer. As a matter of fact, one place it says that many went away. They left. The road got too hard. The cross got too heavy. Too heavy to bear. And, and this is the point that I want you to remember when I talked about the persecuted church. We have many brothers and sisters, faceless and nameless to us, who are under tremendous persecution and pressure. And that is the way life is. Life is that way. Uh, I can remember uh, many people have gone through, in this church even now, some tremendous trials and temptations. We don't get through this life, this journey, if you will, without uh, being unscathed or untouched. We suffer many things in life. But that one who's come truly to confess Jesus as Lord knows that there's no other way. When, when Jesus saw many people go away, he said to Peter and to the other apostles, will you also go away? And what does Peter say? No, Lord, 
No, Lord, you alone have the words of eternal life. There are many Christians all the way back through the centuries and until Jesus come that make up a tremendous mass, if you will, that no one can number. And they've all gone through trials and persecutions. A good exercise this afternoon besides praying for the persecuted church is to go to Hebrews chapter 11 and read that wonderful chapter on faith and then make your prayer. Read Hebrews chapter 11. Go all the way through it and then at the end, make your prayer. Those who have gone on before and have stayed true to Christ regardless of the persecution that arises unto them. Jesus in this passage has said to have wept. Did you notice that? The shortest verse in the Bible, two words, Jesus wept. But this too was a sign, even his weeping, that he not only cared for Lazarus, but that he would suffer death. Now let me say, this finally leads us to belief in the resurrection. Lazarus had been in the grave four days when Jesus got there. And he was raised from the dead. Jesus shouts, come forth. Now you and I cannot do that. Jesus uniquely alone is the resurrection and the life. And he shouts, Lazarus, come forth. Now let me say that this is not a resurrection in the sense that you and I will experience and that Jesus has already experienced. It's a resuscitation. Let me make a distinction between a resuscitation and a resurrection. A resuscitation is that Lazarus has truly died but been brought back to life. But then he is subject to death again. For he has not been transformed and changed. That will come in his resurrection. Jesus, after his death, was raised from the dead, transformed, defeating death. And those that will be raised in his name will never be subject to death again. Did you hear those verses in the book of Revelation? Every tear will be wiped away from their eyes. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ and believing in his work for us that does wondrous things. First of all, it helps us to keep on keeping on, knowing that our persecution, our disappointments, our discouragements, Death itself does not have the last word. The last word in life is Jesus saying, I am the resurrection and the life. True faith, begun by God in you, will continue until the day of resurrection. And this unites us. We not only are united together as a fellowship that believes in Jesus Christ and the resurrection, but it unites us in our belief, in our fellow journey together. It unites us with those Christians who are being persecuted around the world, who are being driven out of Iraq, who are being driven out of Afghanistan, who are being driven out of North Africa. It is estimated that there will be very few Christians left in all of the Middle East in the next few decades. Those ancient communities are being destroyed one by one, but let me tell you, we will see their face one day. 
That's what it means to believe in the resurrection and the fellowship of the saints. That we too will see our loved ones. I uh, suffered greatly as a 20-year-old unbelieving person at the death of my grandfather that I had lived with. It was the first time that death really ever touched me. And I can remember being about three months into my 20th year, going to my grandfather's funeral, the old man on the mountain that I thought would live there forever, the most stable rock in the world. And I can remember going to the funeral, and here was my grandfather, and I thought, the whole world has, it's gone. It made me realize that everything was transient. I didn't have to know what the philosopher said. I knew it in my soul, even though I couldn't put words to it. It seemed like everything was gone. But when I came to faith in Jesus Christ... I had a great and renewed hope in Christ that, yes, I will see my loved ones again. I've been asked sometimes, how much faith, Pastor, does it take to have saving faith and to believe in Jesus and the resurrection? How much faith does it take? How much faith do you have well, you know, some of the saints that I have seen of old and read in church history have a faith that will fill that cup. That's a big cup, isn't it? They have enough faith to fill a cup like that. Now, that's a mean cup of coffee if you put a lot of coffee in there. I am put soup in this, actually, anymore. <laughs> that's a big cup. Some people really have a lot of faith. I mean, they have faith. You think, boy, nothing ever touches them. Of course, that's not really true. But there are people with great faith. And you read Hebrews 11 and you see it. But I was digging in the garage yesterday and throwing some things out, and I came across this cup. It's my older daughter's little baby set cup, teacup. I found it. I hope I find the rest. Maybe you only have that much faith. And sometimes you feel like you don't even have that much to fill this cup. You know, Charles Spurgeon was once asked, the great prince of preachers, Mr. Spurgeon, how much faith does it take to be saved? And he said, you know, I don't really know. But I, but I do believe this that it can be as slender as a silver thread. But if it reaches all the way to heaven and confess that Jesus is Lord, it's saving faith. My friend, we're going to meet people of great faith in the past at the throne of God when we meet our loved ones. Uh, we might be sitting way down at the end of the table. But I tell you this, that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And the hope that I have spoken of today is only, only in him. And through him and by him and for him.
look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, that you too might continue with the saints of the past unto that glorious day and resurrection when we all shall be seated at the supper, the great supper of the Lamb. Amen.